Father, help us now as we come to look at your word. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray for a really significant moment for each of us uh, this, this morning as we, we just open our hearts and minds to what you're saying. Lord, would you guide my thoughts and my words? Uh, I pray that they would be of you and that it would be used to build up your people. In the name of Christ, amen. Wouldn't it be awesome if uh, more prayer meetings we had the sound of mighty rushing wind coming in? I just thought, I just thought to myself, I think this is the air conditioning, but I just, I wish it wasn't. I wish it wasn't. I wish I looked up and there was a flame above his head or something like that. You know. Come, Lord. Advancing the gospel. Two ways that Jesus advances his church. We'll look at them today and we're going to take as a case study um, Acts chapter 9, which is, which is um, kind of, a, well, every chapter in Acts is pretty significant, but this is one of the turning points in the whole history of the church, not to put too fine a point on it. So let's look at um, Acts chapter 9 and we'll not read the whole thing out just now. I'll, I'll read it and then we'll preach and then I'll read it and preach, that kind of thing. All right. So, um, yeah. We'll do that. So let's read together God's word, starting Acts chapter 9, verse 1 on your second sheet, if you want to look at it, um, through to verse 9. Uh, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly... A light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Go, go down to verse 17. Let's, let's read from there. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, that is Saul, he said to him, uh, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you, or has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Two ways that Jesus advances his church. And we'll see that through this text. Um, we, we've been going through the book of Acts quite slowly because there's so much for us to glean. There's so many uh, teachings for us, and especially as a new church, church plant, uh, we're sort of aligning ourselves very closely with the early days of the church in the book of Acts. So it's advancing the gospel. But just to be clear, um, unless you are unaware, or because you're, you're hearing me say these things, um, want to be clear that Jesus is the one who builds his church. He says in Matthew 16, I, Jesus, will build my church. Not you, me. It's me, it's my strength, it's my word, it's my spirit, it's my way. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And what we see here and what we've been seeing through the book of Acts is that that's, that, that carries on, that's still the same today. Jesus is still building his church, not us. 
not our fancy graphics, as cool as they are. Um, it's not our social media, as brilliant as that is. Um, it, it's Jesus. It's Jesus building his church. He's building you. He's building me. And he's building other people through winning them to himself. And he's still in business. And so what I, what I want to try and get across this morning is for us here, um, uh, let's not look at externals. Let's not worry about who's not in the room. But let's, let's come and believe and be expectant and know that Jesus still advances his church in the same two ways. And he, he advances it in, in us in the same two ways as well. So the two ways that we see in this text, there are other ways, but just two that we'll see today. Uh, he, he advances his church through radical transformation and through spirit empowerment. Radical transformation and spirit empowerment. And we're going to sp- spend a bit more time on the first one and less time on the second one, okay? It's a bit of a lopsided sermon, but that's all right, just so you know. Radical transformation, one of the ways Jesus advances his church. Uh, we've just read this, this, this uh, important, famous account of, of, of Paul or Saul. I'll, I'll use those two words interchangeably because he's got two names, um, Saul. Uh, on the Damascus Road, sometimes you hear of people in churches talking about the Damascus Road experience. Or they'll say when they're giving their testimony, it's not like Paul on Damascus Road. I didn't hear lights, I didn't blah, blah, blah. So that's, this is what they're referring to anyway, uh, Acts chapter 9. Background, Paul, Saul, was a devout and zealous Jew, highly trained in his religion. He trained under this guy, uh, uh, um, uh, a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. He was a a leader um, in uh, the Jewish school of thought. And and Saul was one of his um, trainees, one of his students. Paul himself was a Pharisee, which meant he was of a a group within Judaism that strictly adhered to the Old Testament laws, as we see in the, the Old Testament scriptures. And um, we find Saul at this moment in time in this story on a mission from God, or rather he thought he was on a mission from God. He was zealous for God um, and he persecuted the church and sought to destroy it. That's what he said elsewhere in Philippians 3. And uh, we've sort of uh, touched on him a little bit at the end of Stephen's execution in Acts chapter 9. uh, The first Christian martyr, this early leader of the church, There was Saul, and Saul approved, it said, of his killing. And he went around, this is Saul, after Stephen died, ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. And here we are at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, some time later, and he's still doing the same thing. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So there he is. Anyone who's a follower of the way, that was the name given to Christians, probably come from the fact that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And, and so they were known as followers of the way. Uh, threats and murder against followers of the way. Men and women, anyone, uh, he would drag them off to Jerusalem to undergo trial and hopefully um, either put them in prison or rough them up or kill them. He wanted an end to this Christian nonsense. So when we come to Paul, we have to understand he, he's not asking questions about Jesus. He's not a searcher. He's not on a journey. Uh, of faith, um, as, as, as we would say. He's not seeking after Jesus. Remember last week we looked at the Ethiopian eunuch who was seeking after Jesus. He was, he was uh, up in the temple. He was worshipping God. Remember that? And he was on his way back to Ethiopia, had the scriptures out. He was reading Isaiah 53. Who is this? The prophet himself or someone else? He, this is a man who was hungry, who wanted to know, who, who needed knowledge. And Philip the evangelist filled that in and led him to Christ. But here, someone very, very different. He doesn't want knowledge. He doesn't want to know. 
Uh, he's not thirsty. He's not open for the leading of the Spirit. Saul wanted none of this. He couldn't be further away from those, uh, the Samaritans and, and, and the Ethiopian eunuch and all these people. Just didn't want to know. But as we saw, um, as, as, as the story came to its conclusion, if you like, in verses 19 and 20, uh, we, Paul or Saul goes from breathing threats out against the disciples of the Lord to joining with the disciples and being one of them and proclaiming in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. He was one of the disciples. He was with them. He was in community with them. And, and then off he went, becoming an evangelist for the exact cause that he was seeking to, oppre- uh, to suppress and, and kill. He was killing Christians. He despised Christians. And then he had this radical transformation. He ended up joining them. He says uh, later, reflecting back on that time um, in Philippians 3, he said, you know what? My credentials uh, as a Jew, as an upstanding, zealous Jew, were second to none. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. But, he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Radical transformation. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what happened to him? What went on to make this persecutor into a radical disciple? And the answer is, as we've been thinking, because Jesus was advancing his church and he does it through radical transformation. And that's what was going on through the life of Saul and his experience, radical transformation. Uh, Saul, as we see in, in, in the early verses, was on his way to a city called Damascus, north of Jerusalem, in order to round up yet more of these followers of the way and put them in prison. And it says there in verse 3, as he went on his way, evidently he was with a team of others who were helping him uh, carry out his mission, uh, suddenly there was a light from heaven that flashed around him and he, he fell to the ground, uh, uh, flat on his face, and he heard this voice speaking to him. This light just filled his space, if you like, this piercing, radiant, unearthly light. It flashed like lightning. It wasn't lightning because it, it, it came and it, it remained for many minutes probably. Uh, rather than just a, a buzz of lightning. You know, sometimes if you look at the sun um, or, or a powerful, you know, floodlight or something, uh, and then you look away, you know, you get these sort of spots on the back of your eye, don't you? And what that is is a little uh, sort of burn, if you like, on the back of your, your eye and your retina. Uh, and, and, you know, providing you haven't looked at it for too long, it, it eventually goes away, it heals up, you know. Um, but if you take that experience of looking at the sun, and you shouldn't look at the sun, by the way, it's bad, it's bad for you kids, um, but don't do it. But if you do, uh, multiply it up a thousand times uh, and you'll start to understand something of the intensity of the light. Uh, that he, I mean, can, can you ever look at a piece of lightning when it gets you right in the eye? Well, that was the sort of intensity of light that Paul experienced. And as a result, through it, or because of it, or whatever, he went blind. And yet, as he was having this immense experience in this, in this glorious, radiant, unearthly uh, light, he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he responds, who are you, Lord? Just a term of deference at the time. He didn't know who he was talking to. And Jesus replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
get up, go into Damascus, and await further instructions. That was it. That was his experience. He went blind because of the intensity of light. And probably God was teaching him something about his own heart by making him blind. He was blind for three days and three nights, interestingly. He couldn't eat. So traumatized and rocked by what had just happened that he gave up food. So let's just think a little bit for a few moments and tease this out. Because we've got here Saul, who is highly intelligent, well taught, probably had a PhD in Jewish theology, if he was around today, who was a thinker. There, there were very few people that knew more than he did. He trained under the best teacher that he could find, this man called Gamaliel. He knew the claims of Christianity. That's why he wanted to kill Christians, because he knew what they were trying to say and what they were, what they were teaching. He knew that Jesus of Nazareth, this man, was widely believed to be the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He knew that. Saul knew that Jesus was crucified by the Romans. He knew that. Saul knew that Jesus died a cursed death on a cross. It wasn't just that he was sort of stoned as bad as that was, but he was put on a cross and hung in open you know, um, public to, to shame, shameful death, crucified naked, humiliating, the sort of death that's reserved for the worst possible criminals. Paul knew, uh, Saul knew that. Saul knew from God's word that someone who is killed on a cross or on a tree is not only humiliated in the eyes of everybody who watches, but is also utterly rejected by God. It's a cursed death. Saul knew that. Saul knew that there were many people who claimed to see this Jesus after he rose from the dead. He knew that. Saul knew that there was this growing movement of people who seemed to think that this Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited chosen one who was going to bring God's kingdom through his person and work. He knew that. He saw many people, perhaps some friends, some fellow Pharisees or other priests, getting sucked in to this new movement called the church. They were losing their heads. And according to Saul, he couldn't reconcile the fact that such a cursed death by a man who died on a cross could also be the death of someone who claimed to be the son of God. The two just can't come together in Paul's system. It was a, not only wrong, but it was very, very dangerous. And so Saul took it upon himself to go on a mission from God, do God's work for him and, and, and stamp out this, this Christianity before it got out of hand. But let's just be clear when we think about Saul at this moment. He, he didn't need knowledge. He knew the gospel he just hated the gospel. He, he, he knew the claims that Christians were making. And that's why he went on a mission to try and kill them. He knew the Christian faith. He knew the Christian gospel. And this is the major point I want to get to in saying this. Knowledge about Jesus is insufficient for radical transformation. Knowledge about Jesus is insufficient for radical transformation. Because it is possible to know about Jesus without knowing Jesus. Do you see what I mean? You can have knowledge, but just because you have knowledge about Jesus and the gospel and the Christian faith does not mean that you have this life-changing, life-giving, joy-erupting, peace-imparting, heart-pumping, radical transformation that happens to disciples of Jesus. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. Saul shows that clearly. In short, knowledge is not enough. 
Knowledge is good. We need knowledge. We need to know what we're believing in. There's, there's content to our faith. There is a person who says stuff and we, we get to understand what he's saying. But knowing about that is not enough. There are plenty of people in our day and age that you know, probably in your families, in churches maybe you've been to, what have you, that know things about Jesus. They know the gospel. They've been reared in the church. They, they've been taught in Sunday school. They're well drilled. There, there are people who are, have sat under Bible teaching uh, their whole lives. There are individuals who have gone and studied the Bible in, in university and in seminary, who hold PhD in, in effectively knowledge about Jesus. Knowledge is important, like I say, but, but knowledge alone is not enough. It doesn't, doesn't save you. Knowledge does not transform you. A person, every person, in order to have radical transformation that Jesus offers, must encounter Jesus for themselves. They must have a knowledge that, that maybe starts in the mind, but it goes down deep. Like a tree putting in roots. It goes down deep into your soul. It becomes not just information, it becomes personal. It becomes relational. Knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus. There's a, um, <clears throat> quite a famous mathematician and physicist and philosopher, a French man called Blaise Pascal. And he uh, was around in the 17th century. So quite a, quite a long time ago. But he's an individual. You've heard of maybe Pascal's Law and Pascal's Wager. And he, 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 was, he was very intelligent. Even as a young boy, uh, he was way ahead of his peers. Uh, his parents, well, his, his mother died actually at an early age. His father recognized um, his talent and sent him to the finest school that he could possibly afford. Um, as, as, a, as a 19-year-old, he constructed, this is back in the 16th century, right? Didn't have electric in those days or anything like that. Um, he constructed the first, what, what people say is the first computer, uh, a, a mechanical device that enabled people to, to, do, to do sums without having to do it longhand um, on, on paper. And it was sold to uh, wealthy French families who wanted a computer in their house. And this, this, is, this is when he was 16. Highly intelligent individual. He was taught the Christian faith as a child. He was brought up in Catholic France. And yet at the age of 30, at the age of 30, he had an encounter with Jesus that would change his life forever. In fact, it was only after he died, Pascal, he died in his 60s, that they, they found in his coat, in his jacket, a piece of parchment that had been sewn into the jacket, which meant that he had it with him all the time. He knew it was there. Couldn't get it out and read it. It was sewn in. <clears throat> but they only found it after he died. And this is, this is an extract from the piece of parchment that he had sewn into his jacket. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, Feast of St. Clements. From about half past ten at night until half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found in the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Two hours. And he's scribbling all these things down afterwards. Sewed them into his coat. What was happening? What was Blaise Pascal experiencing 
1654. Here's a great example of someone who knew about God growing up. But this describes the day that he encountered Jesus for the first time. And for him, it was like fire, joy, tears of joy. And this is a great example of how Jesus advances his church through radical transformation. What does it mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? Well, there's a challenge and there's hope. Challenge and hope. What is the challenge? Here it is. It is not knowledge that saves us. It is knowing Jesus, encountering Jesus that saves us. Knowing is a strong start, but on its own it is insufficient. And so here is the challenge. If you know stuff about Jesus, but you haven't encountered him in any way, shape or form, in a way that changes your life, has a claim on how you spend your money, what you do, who you hang out with, all that stuff. If you haven't had an encounter with Jesus, then you need to have one. You need to ask. You need to ask that the stuff you know about Jesus will be pressed down into your soul and that that will become real, that will become fire in your heart. And pray, show yourself to me, Lord. Let me know you deeply. Let me see your brilliance, Lord. Bring me light, bring me fire. Open my eyes to see Jesus, the one who was crucified for me, the one who rose for me, the one who ascended to your right hand for me, the one who poured out his Holy Spirit for me, the one who is bringing me to the Father. Fire, tears of joy. So that's the challenge. Do you have knowledge, but have yet to have an encounter? And just so you know, disclaimer, uh, it may not happen in the way that it happened to Saul on the way to Damascus. In fact, very rarely does it ever happen like that in terms of knowing Jesus. Often the way of the Spirit, the work in our lives is quiet, it is slow, it is progressive. And it's often when you look back, you realize, I know him. He, he knows me. He's got me. Sometimes it is this sort of uh, cataclysmic event bringing you to your knees like Pascal that night for two hours. So challenge, knowing Jesus or knowing about him is not enough. Got to know him, encounter him. Brings challenge, but also brings a hope for us. There's so many ways that we can apply this and, 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 and benefit from this, but the hope, look at, I mean, look at Saul. As, as a man who hated the church, he hated Jesus, he hated Christians, you would struggle to find or know someone who is further away from the Christian faith than Saul um, in this text. And yet, at the end of just a few verses, we see someone who has experienced radical transformation, someone who is so far away from God, and yet was won by Jesus and transformed. And so, when we look at that story, it must bring us hope. Right? As a church, if you're a believer, as, as a believer, as an outsider, it brings us hope because, first of all, there is no sin too great that Jesus can't deal with. For you and your experience and your history, there is no sin too great that Jesus can't deal with. And for your family member or your neighbor or your friend who just seems so far away, there is no one too far gone that Jesus can't deal with. You don't, I, trust me, you're not as bad as Saul. You don't know anyone as bad as Saul. And so if God can do that to him, then he can do that to your family member, your spouse, your, your colleague. He can do that. Jesus lifts 
burdens. He, he, he will take it off you. He, he, he will take anybody. He, he took me. He took many, many of you. If Jesus can transform someone like Saul, then he can do it for you. He can do it for people you know. And that's, that's just so much hope for us, surely, at Foundation Church, right? As we, as we move forward and as we go out and we, we want to push back the darkness with the name of, of Jesus. We want to bring light where there is, there's not light, where it's dark. And, and we're going to encounter people who, who just seem so hateful and so, um, yeah, aggressive towards Christianity. It doesn't mean to say that everybody who hates on Jesus is going to have a sore moment, but let's, let, it, let it bring us hope that he can do it and he will hope so the first way that jesus advances the church is through radical transformation and we see that in the in the life of paul second second way shorter um we see that through examining a bit about ananias uh jesus advances the church through spirit empowerment okay we've been saying from day one we are a gospel-centered spirit-empowered community on mission and this is how jesus advances the church through spirit empowerment what does that look like in this scene we need to look um, from verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For he, behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision. I love that. He's blind, but he sees a vision. He's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how evil, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority uh, from the chief priests to bind up all who call on your name. Uh, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias, as we've already read, went in obedience, laid his hands on him, brother Saul, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately he was healed regained his sight, baptized, and started preaching the gospel. Spirit empowerment is one of the ways that Jesus advances his church. This is just so spiritual, this whole thing, right? It's just so much Holy Spirit activity going on here. It's hard to avoid that conclusion. Saul is blinded. He's led to Damascus. I love, it's just so ironic. The city that he intended to go and do more persecution was the city that he ended up getting saved in and becoming a, a disciple of Jesus. In fact, probably Ananias was on the hit list because Ananias uh, sounds like he was, he, was, he was a leader. When you see Paul's uh, account again in Acts 22, um, Ananias is a, is a reputable individual. He's a leader. And so he was probably on the hit list. And he's the one who gets called by God to go to Saul and lay his hands on him and pray for him so that he might receive the Spirit and be healed. So Jesus, the Lord, appears in a vision He's appeared in person already to Saul. He appears in a vision to Ananias. Um, whether it was a dream that he experienced, whether it was just a sort of a general awareness of God, uh, Jesus Christ present in some form or other before him, whether it was a visual phenomenon, probably was. It was called a, a vision, you know, that you can, you can see. We don't know exactly how it, how it came about for him. Um, Jesus, though, whatever way, through the Holy Spirit, grants this vision and he gives direction to Ananias and he makes it so clear. You know, in fact, he says, this guy, Paul, who is blind, is actually waiting for you. He knows your name, so don't delay. Go straight away. You can't get out of this one. He needed that vision to, to push him. Uh, rise, go to straight street. I mean, the vision is so specific. A specific street in a specific town uh, with a, with, owned by a man called uh, Judas. 
uh, looking for a guy from Tarsus called Saul. I mean, it's so specific. There is no way Ananias is getting out of that one. Uh, and I want you to go and lay your hands on him and heal him. Uh, I, I don't know. I, there's, there's, there's similarities here, isn't there, between that and the, the uh, Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, and Philip's told to go off to the desert place. I think Ananias probably, if I was in his position, would be thinking, hang on, what? What did he just say? Seriously? Have you any idea, Lord God, uh, how much evil this individual has been doing to your saints, may I remind you, in Jerusalem? Seriously? The desert road? It just seems to be that God has a, this sort of track record of calling people to what seems like a fairly balmy situation. This seems to be dangerous, seems to be counterintuitive. But his people don't know the full story. We do. When we, when we stand back and read scripture, we can see what happens. But at the time, they had no idea. That's often the Lord's way. Go! You've got to do this. So he went. He went. And Ananias went and found Saul, just as God said, just as the Lord said in the vision. And he said, look, Saul, I'm here, so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he placed hands on him. Something like scales fell from his eyes as he prayed for him, as he placed his hands on him, as he obeyed Jesus. And suddenly Saul could see. I think it was a physical thing. I think he really was physically blind and there really was physical things that came off his eyes, but surely there was something deeper going on as well. There was a spiritual blindness. He was, he was blind for three days. And then through the giving of the Holy Spirit, the receiving of life, the, the, you know, the laying on of hands, then he was alive. Then he could see. Then he was reborn. Jesus was three days in the grave. Paul was blind for three days and then he came alive. And he was baptized, probably by Ananias, although it doesn't say exactly who did it. And he ate food, and then he started preaching. Immediately, I love that word, immediately he, he went to the synagogue and started reasoning. But you see the spirit empowerment, <clears throat> these appearances of Jesus, these visions, these healings. These are all very, very spiritual things and very amazing and awesome and all that stuff. But the thing that we have to remember when we come to this text is that Jesus does all that through actual people, ordinary people, to whom he gives the Spirit to do his work. Jesus doesn't, although he could, but he doesn't bypass people uh, to achieve his purposes. He uses his people to advance his church. He uses people like us to advance his church. It's important that we understand that Christianity is not an individual, personal faith. It is individual, it is personal, but it is not only individual is not only personal Jesus wins people to his body Jesus wins people to his church his bride we are a, a body of people Ananias was remarkably spirit empowered to do the work of Jesus who advances his church but look at this look at this precious uh, little detail how does Ananias address Saul what is the first word he uses this former persecutor this worker of evil, this hater of Jesus. What does he call him? Brother. Brother Saul. Who, who could do that except someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who saw Jesus and, and knew the power of the gospel and, and, and was led right into the lion's den, so to speak. Brother Saul. You're one of us. 
you're, you're part of the family, you're with us, brother. It's not like they had to sort of ease up to the whole brother status thing, you know, and, and, and contact and, and, and sort of, you know, go, go in and then maybe in a few weeks later we might, we, we might be friends and then a few years after that I might call you brother if you're lucky. Because of the Spirit, because Jesus is building his church, because Ananias obeyed, because of what Jesus has done in making a hater into a disciple. Instantly, straight away, from the top level, Saul was a brother. He was one of us he was welcomed into. And that's why I'm just impressing this upon us because Jesus radically transforms people, but he does that in the context of the Spirit-empowered community. He wins people to the church. And so we see Saul, brother Saul, spending time with the believers. I mean, that's just mind-blowing when you think about it. He was days earlier going up to round them up, put them in prison and kill them if he could get away with it. And here he is now in the same city with these same people, but very different in his relationship to them. He was as a fellow believer, a disciple. And probably they took a bit of convincing uh, that, that, that Saul wasn't here on some sort of covert mission. He wasn't masquerading as a believer so he could get some more intel on them. Uh, they, were, they warmly welcomed him into the church. I love that. Visions, healings, dramatic outpourings of the Spirit, signs and wonders, all these things are part of the, a healthy local church. All of these things will be to, to be sought by us, um, but they are not an end in themselves, right? They are not an end in themselves. All of these things, all of these gifts that God gives us through the Spirit are to build up the community of faith. We're a community on mission and we're a community that accepts all kinds of people, welcomes home the haters and the persecutors. Those who are far off are brought home. And, and this, this is why it's important that we see what spirit empowerment really means, what it leads to. Jesus advances his church. So let's conclude with this thought here. Does Jesus still build his church today? Yes, he does. Is he still in the business of radical transformation? Yes, he is. Does he still empower his people with his spirit so that the community on mission is built up and, and more added, yes, he does. Does Jesus want to build his church? Yes, he does. Can he build his church? Absolutely. Jesus is ready. Jesus is in action. We have to understand this because the more we see uh, Jesus advancing his church through ordinary people like us, radical transformations, spirit-empowered people like us, it increases our expectancy that he will work and keep doing what we see here. Once we understand that Jesus is, is, is about all this, it makes us open to the possibilities of what we can do. When, when we see what he can do to Saul and what he can do to Blaise, Pascal and countless others today, we are prompted to be open to him, to be available to him, to say, yes, Jesus, use us. We are here for you. Jesus, come and work miracles among us. Come and transform lives among us. Come so that the blind might receive sight. Come and reveal your glory and your light to us and Foundation Church to the glory of God. Let's pray as we draw these things to a close and we're going to come in, into a time of worship and response now which includes coming to the supper, sing, singing. Um, <clears throat> as we do this though, I, I want to uh, allow a few moments just for, again, for the spirit to work, to move, uh, to bring things to your attention. Uh, as we've gone through the text, maybe one thing has jumped out of you and you think, yes, that's, 
that's for me. I needed that. Maybe an area of your life uh, that is cold to the warm love of, of Jesus and, and, and you need time to receive that and say, yes, Lord, I, I need that. Maybe it's a, a prayer that you need to pray for his spirit to empower you and work through you. So let's stand together. Let's stand together. And then we'll have a few moments of, of, of reflection. Uh, open yourself to God and then we'll pray together. We're going to pray for two things together. We're going to ask God, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit, to move us from knowledge to encounter. And secondly, we're going to pray for an empowerment, a filling, fresh filling of, of His Spirit. So let's pray first. Let's ask for, for the Spirit to move us from knowledge of Jesus to encounter with Jesus. If you want to use these words and agree with them and amen with me, then you can, you can do that. Lord Jesus, <clears throat> we want to know you and we want to know that we know you. We realise that without you we are lost. We're like sheep that wander away. We're on a road to nowhere. Save us, O oh Lord. Transform us, Lord Jesus. Forgive us for our sins. Make us yours. Confirm to us, Lord Jesus, that you are our shepherd and that we belong to you. May we go from knowledge about you to encounter with you. Second prayer. Lord Jesus, will you use me. Use us. Work through us in this church. Holy Spirit, will you call us? Holy Spirit, will you equip us? Holy Spirit, will you help us to serve you? Help us to make space to hear your voice in our worship, in our lives at home and at work. Show us what we must change in order to come to you and listen. Holy Spirit, give us power. Give us strength to obey you. Give us strength to 
lay hold of Jesus and all that he offers us. Father God, pour out your spirit, the spirit of Jesus upon our church. May we see radical transformation among one another and in others as they come to our church, as you advance the church through this little expression here at Foundation Church. Father God, grow us in breadth and in depth. For the fame and renown of Jesus, we pray. Amen.